when we have to make hard decisions, whether it's in your relationships, in your career, your interactions with the world around you, when you are gone at the end of your life, what is going to be the best part of your story? What story do you want to tell? everyone. Emily Abadi here coming to you from the AG studio. You are listening to episode 202 of Hurdle, a wellness focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life. And my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. Today's conversation with Sally McRae is honestly, I'm trying to find the words. It's inspiring. It is really heartfelt and vulnerable. And I could have spent, goodness, like the better part of three hours talking to Sally. Uh, This conversation is about one hour. (laughs) But even at the end of it, I just was sitting there in amazement thinking that there were so many more topics that we could have touched on. We don't even get into the why behind her nickname, the yellow runner, which is actually because growing up, her nickname was sunshine. So as you can imagine, hence comes yellow runner. I digress. Sally and I talk about so much in episode 202. We talk about her upbringing and the difficulties that she faced living in a household with abuse from her father, both emotional and physical. She talks about the love she had for her mother and how difficult it was to lose her to cancer. And also, you know, the massive impactful role that her mother had on her life. So much grace, so much wisdom that Sally undoubtedly carries with her through her every single day. Sally talks about how her relationship with God helped her to forgive her father and move forward and what that looked like for their relationship. And we do have a really special discussion about boundaries and about how at times the quote unquote right thing for you may not be totally understood by the people around you. She also talks to me about getting into ultra running and how the sport has completely transformed her life and about her proudest accomplishments, which although she has done some gnarly stuff in her career as an athlete, one of them is being able to succeed in her sport as a mother of two. We talk about goal setting. We talk about what excites Sally right now. We talk about so much goodness in this episode. And I am just elated that Sally found the time for Hurdle and that she is standing on her own two feet, proud of the woman that she's become and sharing her beautiful story and self with the world. You know, I stumbled upon one of those posts on Facebook where it shows you what you were doing 13 years ago. And 13 years ago, I was sharing with my followers at the time that I landed an internship at Fitness Magazine. And when I think about that young Emily, 2009 Emily, she would be so damn proud of what I am doing in my 
career right now and probably wouldn't even believe the unbelievable people that I've had the opportunity to interview and talk to and this career path. And so lately, I'm personally just feeling a whole lot of gratitude for Hurdle, for all of you, the hurdlers, for empowering me to literally live out my dreams of connecting through community and having important discussions and really making my passions for wellness and fitness and conversation into a career. It's truly, it's truly really special. Make sure you're following along over with Hurdle on social. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And with that, I'm gonna get to it right now. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Sally McRae. She is an ultra runner, also host of the Choose Strong podcast. Sally, how you doing? I'm doing great. Sally, what's going on? <laughs> well, you know, I just got back from a run and I'm having a little bit of water and coffee right now and was so excited to talk to you. I just, I want to say thank you for inviting me on in the first place. Um, I love I love doing this. I love talking. Thank you for giving me your time. An absolute no-brainer. Not only are you such an accomplished athlete, but I could listen to you talk forever. Oh, thank you. That's a huge compliment coming from you because you're amazing at what you do. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I really, again, I do. I really appreciate your time. We'll stop just like telling everyone how much we love each other now. <laughs> you know, people are like, get on with it. People are like, okay, we get it. You guys like each other. I will say this, you know, I have listened to you on a fair share of other podcasts now, and we'll get into your backstory and, you know, kind of the building blocks of the question that I'm about to ask here. But you have spoken so openly about the difficulties that you have been through in your life and the pain that you have experienced. But what I find so interesting about it is how humble you are in expressing your journey. But more specifically, and this is what I'd love to unpack a little bit, you talking about how, yes, you know pain, but that you continually meet and see individuals that are going through things that in your lens, which is quote unquote, even more difficult than the things that you have been through. And I think that sometimes that can be a little bit Dangerous is a big word, but a little bit dangerous when we get to this place where we're comparing, like I went through something hard, but they are also going through something hard. Like, wouldn't you say that everyone is almost entitled to mm -hmm. their struggle? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I love that you asked this question because I, I gave a talk back in, um, in Texas, uh, in November and it was, um, this event was made up of, of high level athletes, entrepreneurs, um, businessmen. It, it was like a, yeah, kind of like an encouraging weekend. And so I shared my story and somebody, uh, in the audience actually raised their hand and they were like, dude, I, I, I mentor people. I coach people like life coaching and stuff. He's like, I personally really struggle when somebody is complaining about something so small and they see it as like such a big pain and such a big challenge or in their life. And he's like, how do you tolerate that? He's like, I listen to your story. And he's like, mine is, you know, I didn't go, I didn't have the path that you did. And he's like, but then there's other people that, you know, 
are stagnant and they complain so much about something so small, like how do you talk to all people in that way? And so, you know, I think that I, I really believe that our journeys and our stories are so specific to us. They are all valuable. They are all precious. But many times what helps us get through some of the most challenging things in our life is understanding that it's a part of all of our lives. And it is sad when when you meet people that since the time you know they were born, they grew up in a house of pain or that they were forgotten or abandoned or orphaned or, you know, and have had to work their way through understanding um, that there is good in life and that there is good things for them and that the best is yet to come. And it's really difficult to encourage people that live every day in, in pain. Um, but at the same time, you know, you meet people that maybe th their lives started out great, like grew up in a great family. Like they kind of had, you know, lots of opportunities and weren't really at one. And then all of a sudden in their forties, they're hit with catastrophe and tragedy. And so I, I, the messaging I like to give is like the, is always talking about the journey. And when I say you don't know what's around the corner, you don't know what's ahead, it's, there's two sides of that. Like you could be at a point in your life where you are just flying high. It's amazing. Like sky's the limit. Like you're reaching all your goals. You have, every, you got money, you got a great family, but you don't know what's ahead. But so when you keep that in mind, it makes you appreciate life and be more gracious and compassionate to other people because at any moment, your life can change and it can be, it can change for, for good or it can change for, for bad, but the goal is to keep on going. So I, I don't like to use it as, you know, I actually wrote a post about this a while back. I said that ultra, ultra running is not pain and suffering. You know, we hear this so much that people talk about running hundred miles They're like, Oh, it's so much suffering, so much pain. And I'm like, that's a gift that you get to do that. Like you signed up for that. You, you paid hundreds of dollars to get to that start line for the opportunity to push yourself and see what you are made of, for an opportunity to have people come around you. You have crew that are like following you around for 24, 30 hours just to support you to get to the finish line. That's a massive gift. That is not pain and suffering. Yeah, you're going to have some physical ache, some physical challenges. You're going to be thrown up, having diarrhea, all the things, getting dizzy out there. I've experienced that all. But if you do not take what you learn on the trail, if you don't take what you learn in your sport and apply it to real life, then you've lost. You've lost out on so much. And, and we see that a lot. I think not just in running, but in all sport, like we can be so tough and so gritty in sport. But if we can't be tough to endure with people, if we can't be tough to support other people in our real life, we, we've wasted the gift that we've been given. Wow. The power of perspective. Too, too long didn't listen. Basically, what Sally's trying to tell you is that perspective. Perspective is everything. And I mean, you, you mentioned uh, in that all different types of people coming from, you know, really great upbringings to maybe not so great upbringings. And I know from following along with your story that you certainly had a fair share of hurdles within yours. So why don't you shed a little bit of light on that for those that may be unfamiliar? 
Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm writing a memoir that I'm hoping to come out in the next few months. And I grew up in a family of seven in, we lived in Southern California. I'd, I'd say that, and I always try to be really careful about how I talk about what I have and I, I didn't have because uh, at, starting at, at 17, I started traveling the world and I realized, oh, I, I've always had a lot more than most, than most people. But um, I started working pretty young. I started going to work with my dad when I was seven. Um, I had two jobs by the time I was 15 and I've never not had two jobs. So I've always, always worked. You know, there I, I just, we never had dental insurance. We never had medical insurance. You know, I always had holes in my shoes and uh, we had, you know, we got government lunch growing up at school. We kind of were from the other side of town. So, you know, where, where I live, the, the lower income side of town was also, it was very much more multicultural. So I grew up speaking Spanish. Most of my friends spoke Spanish, which, which has served me very well today. But I think that in all of that struggle with, with five kids, both my parents were always struggling with money. There was a lot of stress in our home too. So my personality was pretty different from my siblings and I was a little bit more outgoing, outspoken. I was I was a really happy, naturally happy kid, but my dad, for whatever reason, was extremely displeased with me. He just didn't like me. And I know that's kind of hard to understand, especially for anyone that's a parent that's listening, but there was nothing that I could do to please him. And so because of that, I kind of grew up as a overachiever, constantly being a people pleaser. You know, I, I wanted to be perfect in everything I did. You name the award, I had it, whether it was a physical education award or an academic award. Um, I, I had it all. And so also because of that, I was really close to my mom. And then my mom uh, got really sick when we were 14. Um, like I said, we didn't have healthcare. And so uh, when we finally qualified for the government uh, Medicare, we we discovered that she had um, already terminal cancer. And when I was 17, we watched her pass away in, in our living room. And my struggle for the, the really the turning point in my life was the 12 months from the time that she passed away um, until I was like eight, like 18 and a half, I guess like, like 18 months. But um, so much in my life changed that I I went through seasons where I didn't really believe that there was good or hope or anything left for me. I um, had grown up wanting to be a professional soccer player and I, uh, I kind of threw all that down the toilet. Um, my dad went to jail. My sisters were taken away and put in foster care. You know, I just, I was, I was pretty miserable uh, from the inside, but I'd say that most people didn't know that on, on the outside. Cause I was still trying to hide a lot of what I was going through. So I think that when I became adult and, and a parent myself, I had to work through so many different traumas that I never had gotten help with. I mean, my mom died in my living room, but I don't even remember like hugging anyone after she passed away. I, I never went to therapy or counseling. I mean, I like went back to work. I went back to my two jobs and playing soccer and really, and then it was like months, uh, a few weeks later, my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor. My grandpa died. Uh, my sisters were taken out of the home. So I think I grew up really fast and every step of the way was me always trying to find a way to, to move forward. It was constantly wondering if things were going to get better and they didn't get better for, you know, that year and a half. So I'll pause there because there's a lot inside that <laughs> and I could probably keep talking. <laughs> totally. Totally. I mean, thank you so much for sharing all that. Talking about the anger that you felt there's some value in that and how you were able to uh, 
let go of some of that. We we haven't necessarily touched on this yet. You mentioned feeling as though you were never enough for your father. Your father also was emotionally and physically abusive. So how do you get to a point where you let go of some of that anger so that you can move forward after your mom's passing? Yeah. You know, I, I grew up, um, as, as ironic as it sounds, I did grow up in the church. Um, you know, I, I love Jesus with all my heart. That's God has really been the thing that has gotten me through every season in my life. And my mom was, um, had a very strong faith, like even in her, in her final days, that was all that she clung to. And, um, I, I, as a very impressionable teenager that impacted me so greatly. I couldn't believe that someone who was in such torturous pain, she was in a lot of pain at the end of her life because this cancer spread all over her body. But, um, she spoke with so much peace and was so sure of her faith and was so sure that there would be hope for, she would say that there's a verse in the Bible that says, you know, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And she would say that to me all the time. And, um, and it was very ironic because like when things got worse and worse and worse, I just remember thinking that and I was like, there's no future and a hope for me. Like there is no future and a hope. And when my dad had surgery just six weeks or a couple months after my mom died and his uh, brain tumor was so rare that from one ear to the next, they cut his head open and they inserted these giant bolts into his head, but the bolts had to stay exposed. And so no one else was there to pick him up from the hospital except me. And I had just turned 18. And I remember thinking in my mind, like, as I drove to the hospital, and I, I still to this day have a hard time going to hospitals. I went to hospitals a lot growing up as a kid. I just get a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. But I remember pulling into the parking spot and just punching my steering wheel. I was so angry. And I'm just screaming at God saying, you you took the wrong one. Like you took the most loving, encouraging mom who encouraged me in all my dreams. She was always there for me. She spoke kindness and loved me my whole life. And you know, she couldn't do a great job protecting me from my dad because he was oppressive towards her too. But man, I, I had a lot of hate for my dad. And I remember sitting in the car and praying, I have to go and pick him up in the recovery room right now. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I don't want to take care of him. But I knew having, having grown up reading the Bible, I knew that anger and bitterness, what it does inside of you. It, it, it spills out into every relationship and every part of your life and, and who you are. Like you can't compartmentalize that. Like if you're an angry person because somebody hurt you, you're, you're going to be angry towards those that you even love. And, and this is a, you know, textbook psychology and, and you know, whatnot, like people who have been hurt, they're going to respond in anger and they're going to respond by pushing people away. And at the core of who I was, like, I didn't want to be that person. So I sat there and I just prayed and I said, God, I can't love him without you. You have to help me forgive him because I can't do it by myself. And I, I distinctly remember walking into the hospital when I was directed to go through this room and there was a little window, you know, a little peaky window into the room first. And I get, it was like, I'm underwater things that were moving so slowly at this point, because I, I could not believe what I saw, but it was the back of my dad in a wheelchair and he slumped over to the side, his hands hanging off. 
Um, and the kind of uh, brain tumor he had is acromegaly. So his body, it's like giganticism. So his whole body like was huge. And there's blood just pouring out of this bandage that's supposed to be covering these bolts in his head. And it's the back of him. And it was like, I, for a split second, got this picture of great need. And I realized in that moment, never had my dad ever felt like he needed me or wanted me or even wanted me around. And I realized that as, as humans, cause I, I grew up really fast. So I was, I was around adults a lot, but I realized as humans, we all have great need and we all have the ability to hurt people deeply. We all do, whether we mean to or not. My dad was very intentional in it. And I looked at him and I thought he, he needs me. God help me to love him, help me to forgive him. Because if I don't release how much I hate him, I'm going to end up just like him, this broken man. And that's what I'm thinking. This man is so broken who used to hurt me so bad and used to oppress me. And now he needs me. And I don't want to be in that same position. So yeah. taking him home and, um, you know, the, I, re, I remember the nurse telling me, you can't let his head heal up over the bolts. You got to pull the skin away. You know, she's telling me all this stuff and like, this is how you give shots. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I'm just like terrified of blood and needles. And, but you know, that at one point it's just realizing like you either are going to run away or you're just going to get right in it. No matter how uncomfortable it is, you have to face it if you're going to get through it. So. I'll pause there too. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like keeping the cadence of this podcast for me. Two things to ask here. First, a comment, I guess. Uh, The first thing is that beautiful lesson that you profoundly knew so early on, which is that forgiveness isn't for the other person. Forgiveness happens and needs to happen for the person that is feeling so many of the feelings that you experience, that anger, that frustration, that deep sadness, knowing that if you don't forgive, if you don't allow yourself the space to move forward, then you are the only one that is suffering as this other person who at some point or another has inflicted such sort of a pain upon you all by intentionally or not intentionally or what have you. If you don't let go of this, then they're just living their life. And you're the one that's struggling with all of these frustrations. So what a beautiful lesson that you learned so early on the importance of forgiveness. This begs the question, did you ever feel as though he appreciated your forgiveness or your sacrifice for his condition. No, I mean, I, and I should be very straightforward. I don't have a relationship with him at all. You know, forgiveness is a journey too. You know, that was the beginning. And I I talk about this in my book, how that is, that was the first time that I acknowledged that I needed to forgive him because I knew he would never be sorry. My dad has never admitted to anything that he has done. He, he was never in the wrong. He made it very clear that I always deserved everything I got. He made it clear that I was a a spoiled rotten brat. Who's never worked a day in my life that I've never known what it feels like to hurt, to suffer, to have challenged my life. Um, he, he was extremely, uh, emotionally damaging, um, pretty much my whole 
life. But because of my faith, I had a very strong conviction that, well, he's my dad. I need to like do everything I can to fix this because I believe that you, you forgive people until the day that you die, no matter the offense. And that's extremely difficult. I think for most of us to swallow and to comprehend because we tend to rate things. We tend to say, well, this isn't that bad and this is worse. And, but the fact that, I mean, we even see it in the news all the time for parents to forgive a rapist or a murderer. You see it in courtrooms all the time. Like you said, they're doing it so they can keep living so they can move on because you cannot change what has been done, but you can heal and you will heal with scars that will remind you from where you came from. But those scars are, are powerful. They're not meant to remind you of, of what a terrible weak, you know, no good, nothing you are. They remind you that you're strong. They remind you that you can heal. And I knew that I wanted that. Like maybe we could heal these scars. Like we can't undo, like I can't undo uh, the way he beat me and I can't undo the way he would humiliate me and hurt me with his words. But but there's also forward. If we wake up each day, there's a, a new opportunity and a new chance. And, you know, I, I actually speak about this all the time. I always, some, every now and then I'll say when I post something on Instagram, like everyone thinks I'm talking about running. I'm never talking about running. It is always about life. It is uh, 100% I'm talking about life because running is just the fun part. That's a gift and the opportunity. That's where I find my voice to send a message, but it's, I'm always referring to life. And that at a lot of times when I talk about forgiveness and failure and moving forward, a lot of it is, is from my um, interaction with my dad. But when I was pregnant with my son, my daughter was one years old and I, I kind of had like this last final attempt where I was like trying to make amends with him. And we had conversations on the phone for a couple days straight. It, I had my husband sit in the living room with me. And I said, if, if I am being unfair, if I in any way am being, you know, if I'm just like blasting him and, and being mean and I'm not listening, like call me out as I talk to him because I want to do this right. Because what had happened over the course of like from that time until now I'm married with kids was anytime I was around him, I would get like extreme anxiety and stress. And I would come home whenever I'd see him and I wouldn't be able to eat for a couple of days. Like it was literally like starting to corrode my family. It was starting to corrode my relationship with my husband and my kids. Like I was really suffering. And I knew, I knew personally, because I just had done so much research and after going to college, I was a communication studies major. I knew that if there is a extremely toxic person in your life that is literally changing the soul of who you are. You know, you, you are fearful and you're afraid and you can't even function normally that that person should probably not be a part of your life. But I had a hard time with that. Cause I was like, no, I have to endure Like I'm enduring. Like I persevere with people. I forgive, like I'm going to keep going. But at this point I realized you can forgive and still love somebody and let go all at once. And there is power in that. And sometimes that is what needs to happen. And I know there's going to be people listening because anytime I speak on this, I get hundreds of messages from people like I am having a hard time forgiving. And, and there's two ways that go. There is where there's reconciliation on both sides and you're both working to heal and move forward. But then there is still like, there's one that wants to heal. And the other one that is refusing to see you is refusing to acknowledge your pain and your hurt and, and to move forward with you and to, and to see you as your own individual. And, you know, and if it is causing you that deep, you know, stress and anxiety and hurt all the time, 
you can still love that person and forgive them from afar. And, and that is what happened in those two days of conversations. What I realized was that my dad just, he did not see me. He didn't, and he literally said on the phone, and this is after I, at this point had had 15 jobs in my life. I'm pregnant with my second child. And he says to me, you don't know what it's like to have pain in your life. You don't know what it is to work a hard day, not one single day. You don't need, he's like one day when you're a parent, you'll understand. <laughs> like you don't see me. And I think for all humans, that is what we want. We want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to know that we matter. We want to know that our pain, like that it's valid, no matter how big or small it is. Like if you are hurt, like that, that there's something there in there that needs to be unpacked. So sadly, I do not have a relationship with my dad. I do, you know, my, my mom's been gone, but my husband's family's great. So what you're explaining here is something that is a lesson that takes so long to really execute on. And that is the lesson of having boundaries. So I think that someone listening to this who really hears you and probably can think right now exactly of who that person is in their life that maybe reminds them of the difficulties that you had in your relationship with your father. For that person, what advice do you have for them about letting go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's really hard. There's, there's a, there's a few things I want to say. And I, my heart is just like beating so hard because I do empathize so deeply with people in this area because there is the struggle and even the shame that other people will put on you. But like, unfortunately, like, especially my friends that have come from like amazing homes, they do not get it on any level. <laughs> like they're like best friends with dad, like mom. And I'm like, dude, I never knew that. Like, even when my daughter was born, like, I remember the first couple years, like just watching Eddie interact with Mackenzie, like I would just go in my room and I would cry, I'd like sob. Cause like just the way he looked at her was so foreign to me. And I was like, Oh, like that's, that's how daddies and daughters like interact when they love each other. Like, that's amazing. Like I never knew that. And even now, like she's going to be 16 next week. She's, I mean, he, she truly is the, the light of his life. And and she adores him. And so it sits on his lap and just all those things. And I'm like, I didn't have that. So I just first want to say that, yes, it, it does take time to create boundaries and let go of something that you wanted so long to fix, that you wanted so long to be different. And I think that was the most difficult thing for me. It was like, I just want him to love me. Like, he's my dad. Like, why doesn't he love me? Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, I don't know what else I can do in my power. And then it's understanding that like, it's not your job to control people. It is not your job to make their choices. And you have to be okay that the greatest love is love that it's free. Love that is free, it, it chooses to love you unconditionally, no matter what. It chooses to be kind and, and enduring and persevering, no matter what season you're in. That's the greatest kind of love. And that's what you want in your life, because that is ultimately what gets you to the best version of yourself. And forgiveness is power. Forgiveness is freedom. And you have the freedom to let go and to forgive and continue on. And there, there is nothing greater that you can do in your life to then continue and surround yourself with people that are loving. But it is okay to continue in life with an ache. And I've spoken about this before, that sometimes we, we believe that the healing and uh, the moving forward means that we don't feel it anymore. 
no, I, I still have moments where I'm like, oh man, it just sucks. Like having never had that dad or, or especially writing my book. Like I've had some really horrible weeks. I've had to apologize to my family. I'm like, I'm sorry. I've been so grumpy. I had to write like some really horrible stories, you know, in this, in this book. And when you remember things or, or you smell something, or you see a street corner that reminds you of something, and there's just ache that comes with that. It's okay. You're human and humans you're, you're going to feel, you know, and, and, and if anything that makes you know that you're still alive and that you care, you have the capacity to care. Care, but take what all that caring and those feelings and transfer it on to what is good in your life because you can you can't change what happened but you can change your story moving forward and you can make it great and you can use that pain or whatever that that person did to you that hurt you so badly and you can help other people i mean genuinely be there on on a level that most people don't understand taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my friends at Gooder. Can I tell you, we hosted the Hurdler Huddle out in Los Angeles at the Gooder Cabana space on Abbott Kinney, and it was a vibe. I cannot get enough of my Gooder sunglasses. They are affordable, they're stylish, and they're good for all performance. No bounce, polarized, perfect for running both around, goodness, a track and maybe sprinting to catch the subway, running to brunch. You get the gist. Plus, they have so many different styles. I mean, I can't even count them. There's a zillion of them on their website for every single taste. They've got bright colors. They've got more classic looks. I, myself, am a huge fan of two of their newer styles the PHGs and the VRGs. I love these, these nicknames here. Uh, the, the PHGs specifically really look super sleek. I get compliments on these glasses, which I just wear like running to get coffee in the morning all the time, endlessly from people waiting in line with me. They have them in so many different colors. Again, something for every different taste. And I think it's about time that you get in on the Gooder train if you haven't done so just yet. Of course, they are already super affordable starting at just $25, but because you are a hurdler, I have an additional discount for you. Head on over to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com slash hurdle, and get 15% off using hurdle15 at checkout. Again, that is gooder.com slash hurdle. Use hurdle15 at checkout to get 15% off your Gooder sunglasses today. And you can step out of that moment, right? It's like when we're so present in the pain and we're so thick in the hurt, it's hard to imagine what life could feel like without that hurt because it's almost become familiar. And it's also hard to acknowledge that there can be so much joy on the other side of getting uncomfortable and setting the boundary and getting out of your own way. But getting to that place where you're like, I need to take this step for myself. It can feel selfish. It can certainly feel daunting. It's so intimidating, again, because of the unknown, right? But when you recognize that there can be joy in the unknown, like there can be so much happiness that you're not dealing with in this moment because you're so stuck, right? That happiness is that's, that's what's up. 
And I think that you bring up, you know, a good point, just even the unknown and, and realizing that so much of everything that we do in life, it comes down to our, our mental game. <laughs> we can parallel that with, with sports, but it's how you approach it. And if you know who you are and you believe that your life is valuable, despite even if the whole world says it's not, you have to believe that it is. If you're here, it, there's a purpose for it. And, and so I think moving forward, when you hit those storms, it's just courage. And, and courage isn't being the most badass, toughest person on the start line. It isn't being someone that, okay, I can endure pain because I don't feel it. No, it isn't about being so numb that you don't feel anything. It's being courageous enough to feel all of it and know that what you're walking into is still going to be uncomfortable. It's still going to hurt, but yet you're choosing to go because you understand that getting onto the other side is so important and it is going to be better. And, and that isn't always the, that's the hardest route, you know, I, and this is floating around in social media all the time where it's like, you just need to toughen up and, you know, you need to just push through it and don't think about it. And, you know, push away anyone that's going to hamper you or put you down. But it's like, no, sometimes getting through stuff is literally being shoulder to shoulder around people and things that are uncomfortable, but staying true to who you are and still moving forward courageously. It's the opportunity to become calloused, knowing that even the thickest, most well-developed calluses still rip when put under enough stress. Like you have the opportunity to build that up, but also you need to have the self-awareness to remember that you're still human. So it's not like once you go through something, then if you go through something that's similar to that again, it won't hurt. But what that does mean is that now you have some of the know-how and the tools to understand how to get over that next hurdle moment as it comes. You know, there, there's so much relatability in your story and your struggle. And again, I'm so grateful for you for sharing that. Another huge relatable point when it comes to you, Sally, is that you started to thrive in your athletic pursuits when your kids, you know, were yeah. four, five, six, seven. And so for you, talk to us a little bit about what that's been like for you, finding sport and finding your stride in sport in your thirties. That was, uh, that was challenging. I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. And, uh, I'll, I'll say this specifically to moms and young moms. Um, you're not, you're not going to be the popular mom. <laughs> <laughs> when you are not joining the mommy circles. And, um, and I didn't, I, I think I had to make a choice, um, when my kids were young, that I was going to pursue a dream that I'd had since I was a little girl to become a professional athlete. Um, and I was going, I also wanted to be a, a good mom. I was so close to my mom. I, I loved being a mom. Um, so I literally flipped my whole life upside down and, and created, a life that allowed me to be there for my kids while pursuing a dream. So that was really difficult. I'd say it was, I had a lot of, it was lonely at times too. And, you know, and back then I feel like even just 10 years ago, women weren't so supported in, in sport. So I think when people even understood what I was doing, they're like, you're weird or that's crazy. Or like, no, seriously, like that's psycho. And 
you know, and women were very blunt saying, how can you be a good mom and then still take care of your kids and your house and, and pursue these things? I just don't, I don't see your kids are being neglected. And, and so I, I had to deal with both outside criticism from actually people that were my friends, um, not just strangers and, and people on social media. It was like people that I, I thought that, you know, that I got along with. And still move forward in what I knew to be true of my journey. I I really believe that all of us, every single person that is put on this planet is given a gift and a light. And it isn't necessarily supposed to be used just to parade ourselves. It's not about our glory. It's supposed to be used to impact the world around us and and to reach people and encourage and love. Like we're given things to love on people. I think that's a a great way to view life. If you don't feel like you have purpose in your life, then just go and start loving people and your life will be greatly fulfilled. So I knew that that as an athlete, that was where I my voice was loudest, uh, in both in writing and, and sport. And I had never deterred from those two things from the, from the time I was in kindergarten. And um, I always told my mom that I would write a book one day and that I would be a professional athlete. And um, so when she died, it was like this hiatus. You know, it was many years of of not doing either. And um, but I'd never ever stopped training. So I loved getting in the gym. I loved um, going out on on runs, and I just eventually found a way to do that with babies. And so I would look at training plans that I would download off the internet, and I thought, okay, this says I have to do an eight mile track workout on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I need to do like a seventy five minute run, and then when, you know you you download these generic things and you try to follow them, and I'm like, this, like I cannot do this. Like this is not going to work. So I just started writing my own plans. And what I realized was like, okay, I can run for 30 minutes in the morning with the kids in the jogging stroller because that's about how long they can last in there. And then I have like 45 minutes when they're both down for a nap, I can get on the treadmill. And then in the evening, right before dinner, Eddie usually comes home from work and he, I get like an hour. Okay, I can probably get something in at that time. So every day I was piecing together when I could get a workout in. And sometimes it would take me three workouts to do eight miles, but I did it. And I just believed that regardless of what it looks like, if you show up every single day and you put the work in, it's, it's going to make a difference. And so I did that for a few years. And then I ran my first ultra in 2010. Uh, my kids were uh, two and four when I did that. And, and then it was a few, a few more years of, of racing. And then in 2014 is when I was, um, signed by Nike casual, like I'm just going to start in 2010. And then like by 2014, I'm just pro. (laughs) I do remember when it first happened, uh, a lot of moms had messaged me like, Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Like I run with my son in the jogging stroller all the time. Like, you know, you've inspired me to do this. And I remember thinking my mind is like, I, I literally started training when I was 16. Like I, I never deviated from that. Like I, I started doing two a days at 16 and I never stopped. Like even when I had kids and I didn't have this goal of ultra marathoning, I knew I was supposed to be an athlete and I didn't really know how to do life any other way. And so I was always very fit. So it wasn't like I did this couch to ultra (laughs) couch to pro (laughs) over the course of three years. I mean, at this time, it took me 16 years to realize that dream. So it was 16 years in the making. And so I never want to downplay the work. Like you have to put that work in. And I even think sometimes when, even now, when we see young 
um, you know, kids that are up and coming and they, you know, they, they turn pro or whatever. You have to remember there, there was a, a massive support team and, and a lot of years of building up that, you know, that college kid. It wasn't just, they were, had a couple good years in college and that's it. It's, and it could even be that they were cross training in different sports, but when you set your mind on a goal, you have to be prepared to put in the work for, for many years. And I was raised to work very hard. So <laughs> Beyond the uh, criticism that you said that you experienced from the mom community, <laughs> you also have received some criticism over the years when it comes to individuals feeling as though they get to comment on your body. I know you recorded a few episodes about this and talking <laughs> about body on Choose Strong, but I'd love to talk a little bit about that with you. I loved a, a post that you put up on Instagram. It said, body, want to run a race? Then do it. Leave your appearance out of it. Want to learn ballet? Then do it. Stop wondering if you look like a dancer. Want to swim? Then do it. There's no right or wrong way to look in your bathing suit. Let's talk about what you do with your body instead of how it looks. Give me some insight about your journey to body acceptance. Well, I I starting at a really young age, I was really aware of my body. Like by the time I was probably five or six, my siblings would tease me, which siblings do. And and you get teased on the schoolyard, you know, for whatever it is you're wearing or your hair or whatever. It's I, and this is an important note because we 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 must uh, understand that that is just a part of human interaction. Like we have eyes for a reason. We notice a beautiful sunset, beautiful flower, uh, that the dress in the window. Like we're constantly saying that things are cute or ugly or you know pleasing to the eye or glorious or whatever. That's it, it's a, a conversation starter. What pulls us in? It's what repels us. So. When I was little, you know, my siblings made fun of me that I was fat. So I had this, I definitely had like a little belly. I was like a, I was very short when I, as a kid, like I was really small and, and I was just like chunky and to full on like baby fat. And so I was really concerned about that because they would draw pictures of me with, you know, as, as a fat kid and they'd put them on my bed and I would cry. And, um, so I started doing like push-ups and sit-ups in my room. I don't think that lasted very long, but that's probably like the first time that I was like, Oh, like I'm, you know, I'm fat. But then, um, by the time I was, I'd say like nine or 10, like I was just then really petite. Like I, I lost all my baby fat. I was really lean. And then up until I was 16, I was always really small. Like I was, I was actually criticized in soccer for being too small. And girls would come up to me and say, you could never be a professional soccer player. You're too small. You're not strong enough. You can't push girls off the ball. So I love to speak on both sides because I think that it's important that people understand it isn't about that being really thin or even being really strong. Cause I know that's kind of a trend now too, is like the muscles and the weightlifting and stuff. Like there's some, we all build muscle in different ways. Like our body types are all different. And for me, I thought I was going to be petite for the rest of my life. And then at 16 is when I actually grew. And then I became, and now I do build muscle a little bit easier. Like I always had, um, even in, in high school. So, um, so then things change. And then as I got bigger, even in college, people made note of that and talked a lot about my lower body. I'd say uh, since the time I was in middle school, people have always made comments about my my butt and my legs. I didn't. It wasn't always a negative thing to me. Like I, I think that uh, 
the way that I understood it was just like, oh, I guess it's a good thing. Cause like the guys are saying it's like a good thing, you know, like you don't know how to like as a 12, 13 year old, you're like, oh, like I'm getting attention from guys. Like, I guess my legs are great, you know, but then in high school, you're like, oh my gosh, like this is, it looks like the trend is to be really thin and to be in like these, like these nice tight jeans that I can't fit into unless they're super stretchy. So I think growing up, I, I always went back and forth, but the thing that remained true was that it didn't matter if I was at work at school or on the soccer field, it was about 90% of the time, someone's going to come up to me and say something about my body. So I'll tell you what, when Nike reached out to me to sign me, I was extremely insecure about it. And I didn't believe that it was actually them. So I sent the email to my buddies, my training buddies, Billy, Dave, and Colin. And I asked them, I was like, dude, do you guys think this is like a legit email? They're like, yeah, respond. And my immediate thought was like, man, I'm just, I just don't think I want to be with a company that is so big. Like there's big, they're flashy, like everyone knows them. And I'm just picturing the ridicule that I'm going to get when I'm signed. Cause one, I do not look like a typical endurance pro athlete, like at all. I look like I should be, you know, like a CrossFitter or something like that. So I was really insecure and I kind of hesitated and a buddy was just like, you know what, Sally, like you need to understand that clearly your body doesn't have anything to do with you being signed. <laughs> They're reaching out to sign you because of your performance. So maybe you should take a hold of that. So it was, you know, a couple days of working through that, but I'll tell you why, like within the first month we did a photo shoot and they posted those pictures on the Nike running account. And I cried, you know, it was, I'm, I'm still human. Like I consider myself like I'm, I am pretty thick skin for the most part. I, I do believe that you have the power to receive or bat away the comments that people say. And for me, it, it was just so much, you know, she's so big. That's not a runner. And just, she's fat and tons of comments coming in. So I did struggle my first two years with Nike being with a brand that was so big and realizing that I do not look like any other runner that they had ever signed in the history of uh, women's runnings. But then I realized too, I was like, no, like I need to own this. And I had gone to great measure to meet with um, nutritionists and I had gone to two different clinics to get body fat tested. Cause I was like, you know what? I actually want to see like what I actually am made of. If I were to try to lose weight, what would I look like? So the first person I went to, she did a dunk, um, one of the dunking fat testing on me. And I didn't tell her what I did for a living. I just came in like, Hey, I'm, you know, I just want to get a fat test or, and so she sat me down. She's like, what do you do for a living? And I was like, I run. She's like, are, do you run like a lot or, and I was like, yeah, I run a lot. And I was like, I'm just wondering if you can help me get rid of this muscle. She's like, well, you, you're 11% body fat. If you, there's not really much fat we can get rid of. And then we'd start getting rid of muscle. I go, yeah, can you do that? Can you help me get rid of muscle? Like maybe in my legs. And she looks at me sideways and she's like, yeah, I don't work with people like that. Like she was like pretty much dismissed me. She's like, you will ruin your performance. You will ruin what you do. You're going to be weak. And I was like, I didn't believe her. So I went somewhere else. I didn't tell the guy what I did. I did a DEXA scan. This is where they like lay you on a bed. Same thing. Like I'm, yeah, I, I, I work out every now and then. And then he scans me, he gets the test back. He's like, oh, he's like, what do you do for a living? 
he's like, I, the only people that have ever had these numbers are my professional wrestlers. And I was like, yeah, I don't wrestle. (laughs) I run. And so kind of the same thing. He's like, you know, you can't, I've never had anybody ask me to reduce muscle. He's like, that's kind of like, why do you want to do that? And I, I started explaining it to him and he's like, no, he's like, you can do what you do because of your muscle. And for me, like that's a very humbling story to share um, because I'm in the middle of my pro career at this point, trying to figure things out, trying to figure out like, can I be better? You know, there is there is a, a bit of science and yeah, the lighter thing's going to get faster up the mountain, right? But there's also the other side of you can be very efficient and strong in the body that's been given to you. And so I had to just own it at that point. I thought, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep on doing what I do. I'm going to keep on being strong. And I had always lifted weights. I'd run a fitness and and strength um, company. That's how I was able to stay home with my kids. Um, I started that back in 2007. So I was always sharing my workouts online and posting videos and things like that. And even when people are like, wait, how much do you lift and run? That doesn't make sense. That's probably why you're so big as a runner and you lift too much. And, and I just thought, yeah, but I'm like not injured. Like this is, this is just kind of what, you know, what I love and what I do. And, but yeah, I think that I'll always deal with the comments. I'll always deal with people coming up to me no matter where I go. And I used to be uh, cynical about it and even um, ashamed. I used to wear really long jackets everywhere I went. I was always hiding my body when I would go to events or races or anything. Whenever I did media, just so that I I wouldn't get comments or people staring, but uh, that was not a way to live life. And I, I knew that. I knew I needed to just embrace me. <laughs> people are always going to have an opinion, right? And even you said like both sides of the coin, it was like when you were playing soccer, you weren't big enough. And now that you're running, you're, you're too big. And it's just like that word should, it really gets in your head sometimes. I mean, I recently myself shared a post kind of coming clean that before the New York marathon last year, coming off of a pandemic, only seeing, you know, a certain amount of people in my circle over the past couple of years that I felt really insecure about this idea that I was about to quote unquote be on display running through my city for people to have an opinion about my body. And as a result, and this is what I had mentioned I certainly, I mean, I was eating the weeks leading up to the race, but I was not fueling my body like the strong machine that had carried me for 16 weeks through grueling training through one of the best training cycles that I had ever had. And as a result of that, I felt like by mile eight at the New York marathon in 2021, that I was completely bonked. And you have to go through these hurdles or these quote unquote failures to get to a point sometimes where you find that appreciation that for one reason or another, whether it be a mean comment on the internet or something else that's going on in your personal life, or maybe just where your head is at at the moment, that gets you to have that greater understanding and appreciation for what you do have instead of focusing on the things that you are without or what could be or quote unquote should be different. And so for me to go through that lesson at the 2021 New York Marathon, I now know better. And because I know better, I do better. I recently ran the New York City half marathon and that entire week, I was so much more focused. And I know you nerd out about fueling and nutrition now. Um, I'm totally there with you. I was really thinking like very highly about what I was putting into my body and how I could fuel myself for the performance that I knew that I had worked so hard to achieve. And so 
I'm right there with you. It's hard as hell to not let other people who you actually know nothing about have an opinion on you and your body and what you've got going on and not about that impact you. But as uh, Trent Shelton, he's a motivational speaker. I had him on the show once and he always says this and I am like, yes, sir. Are the people that have something to say about you and your body, are those people going to be at your funeral? Yeah, no. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. So you got to let it go, you know? But again, easier said than done. Totally. I I love that. Yeah. I I actually, now that my kids are older, uh, we have conversations about that because social media isn't something that we had to deal with in our formative years. And I can't even imagine being 16 and dealing with social media right now because I have such a hard time at 16 without it. But then also like for you being a parent and helping them navigate that, my mind is blown. My mind is blown. Right. I mean, we have kids that, you know, their brains aren't even fully formed and you see adults struggling with, with social media all the time. And so we, we're pretty strict with it in my home. We're strict with their phone screen time, all of that. I'm totally that mom. Um, and I'm not ashamed of it. Cause I, I just, I, I see how, how it can change a kid's whole day by the swipe of a screen or a comment that comes in or something that's so hurtful. And I remember when I'm not sure which, which of my kids they had gotten like a mean comment was, was said to them. And I, I told them who are the people that you look up to and that you want to be like, you know, who are your heroes? It doesn't even have to be like a, a famous like athlete or musician or anything like that. When you think of your heroes, are those heroes also taking time to tear people down. Do heroes tear people down? Are people that you are inspired by that you hope to be like one day, people that that are that are always putting in the hard work and working toward their goals is part of their life just randomly putting other people down? And do people that care about you and love you, do they say these things to you? And so we had we proceeded to have this like long conversation about that and they said that's how you're going to know what to receive and what to reject. You know, sometimes your close family and friends are going to have hard conversations with you. There is going to be some constructive criticism and and truth should be spoken. Sometimes that that needs to happen. We don't need flattery and all the good things said to us all the time if we're going to grow, but be careful about who those people are. And you know, I think it's important that you choose who gets to speak into your life. For me, it's a very small circle. And the people who get to speak into my life also call me on the carpet on things too. Like, hey, was that the best decision? Or should you have said that? Because I know they've loved me from day one. They've loved me in all seasons. Sally, who are your heroes? You know, growing up, I I definitely had sports heroes that I looked up to. Um, I loved Michael Jordan. I loved Kim Zameskel, Brandi Chastain, and Mia Hamm. These are all athletes. But my mom really was my greatest hero. There were moments in her life where she exhibited such incredible strength that um, I still recall on those moments uh, in my life today and where I think about probably my, my, and maybe I think this goes for a lot of people. Sometimes the people we're most inspired by, they're not well-known famous people. It's people who live real lives who are both vulnerable in their failures and their weaknesses, but they don't give up. 
And so, um, you know, my, my husband is one of them too. I've, I've always told him like, no one is more persevering and enduring than you are. I, I met him when I was 18. We've been best friends since we were 18. So, and he is, he's never stopped loving me. And I know that I haven't always been a, an easy person to be around, especially just the way that my life is and all the different things that I'm doing all the time. Like he's so supportive. So, you know, the ones that I, that I look up to are they're, they're real people. So I'd say my, my husband and my, my mom. <laughs> Vulnerability is relatable. Finding someone who seems to have no problems at all. That like level of perfection is completely not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Completely not. <laughs> When someone goes to your Instagram page, they see this outstanding ultra marathoner. She's got almost 100,000 followers, a proud mom, a devoted wife. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Well, the most consistent thing that I, I see and I tell myself is someone that's growing. And that's truly what I desire. I, I want to know that I there's still room left for me to grow. I think when I look at myself and I think that too, it allows me to give myself a little bit more grace because I know that with growth, like, you know, it's, it's like any plant, like you got to push through some dirt <laughs> to bloom. And I feel like that in my life, like I, I feel like I'll grow and then I think I have it figured out. And then it's like, no, you still got some more growing to go. There's still uh, things that we can improve on or things that we can do better. But I think too, with, with growth in my life, it just means that I'm also aware of how important it is to be a student. And whether that's like mentally, physically, in my relationships, if ever I come to a point in my life where I think I've learned everything there is to learn or that I'm a master expert, like even as a professional ultra runner, I know there's there's so many mistakes I still make and things that I need to learn. And so, yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest thing. And I'm a woman who is who's, who's growing. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We're kind of winding down here and I'm realizing that we've hardly talked about ultra running. <laughs> and I think that that is a testament to what you were saying before about the fact that running is such a small part of it. Like, yes, it is your career and it is an act that you partake in, but the lessons that you've learned on the run and interwoven with the run are the things that your life is actually built upon. They're the building blocks for who you've become. When you reflect on your career thus far, and you did say that you're just in the middle of it right now, what would you say has been one of your proudest accomplishments as an ultra runner? Gosh. I have two. I think okay. one of them is being able to do it as a mom. I think when I got when I got signed having two young kids and knowing what I came from, like that was huge for me. It's very personal to me. It's it's not popular. You know, when I first came on, I, I didn't really know any other moms that that were doing it. And it it went back and forth. Like sometimes I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. But then I was like, no, it's so great. I know I can still be a great mom and, and show my kids this pathway and, and still pursue things that, that I love. And so there's that. And then winning Badwater last year was, was really personal to me too. I think on a, on a career level, that's something I love. That's something I will never be taken away from me. Being a Badwater champion is uh, something I dreamed about for a long time. And I really loved 
loved being able to accomplish that dream. But a small piece of it, which it actually took me a while to digest was, and I've actually only talked about this like one other time was I wasn't really excited about the performance I had. That wasn't the performance that I had trained for and what I knew I was capable of. Like I was pretty sad about my time. Like I was like, oh my gosh, I wanted like four hours faster. But as I went through like the motions post race, thinking about that, I realized that so much of what happened in that race is so just, it's so true to the journey of my life and what I've, the path that I've always been on. And I have to be okay with that. I have to be okay that, um, for me, it might be that I always get to the finish line with a limp and that very much defines my life and who I am. And I think that being able to share that with people allows them to be okay with like, just because you overcome something or, or you work through um, a challenge in your life, it's okay if you still feel it. it's okay if you still have visible scars from it. Like you don't have to then become like a perfect person. And I've had a couple races where I've, I've won, but like the struggle to get there or like the finishing time wasn't what I personally wanted. And that was hard for me. But then I realized I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is such a beautiful parallel to my life. Like I went out and I trained on that bad water course, like, like so hard. Like I was running the last 12 miles of that race is a 5,000 foot climb up to Mount Whitney. And I ran hundreds of miles in my training in that. And I made sure that I would be the fastest person running up that mountain. And I loved it. That was my favorite part. And in the race, like I was struggling to take a step. Like I, I dragged myself up that mountain and I was in fear a lot too. Cause I knew I was, I lost so much time and I kept on asking crew, like, do you see a headlamp behind us? Like, is someone coming up? Like, I don't know how much longer I can push. And, and the one picture that my husband had posted on his Instagram, it was a mile before the finish line. I'm, I'm on my knees. I'm bent over on my knees. I've been throwing up and, and it's him talking to me saying, you're going to be okay. Like you're so close. And, and I remember at that point crying. Cause I was like, I can't believe like I, I've wanted to win this for so long, but in my mind, I I envision myself winning triumphantly. I envision myself getting to the finish line, like so strong and just like breaking that tape like a tiger. And I'm literally like limping into my, into my champion finish. And, and so that was, that was hard for me, I think on, um, and it's hard to talk about too, because I think that a lot of runners would be like, whatever, man, like I'd do anything to win that race. You're so lucky. Da, da, da. But it's like, when you have a goal for yourself that you've worked so hard for, and you've devoted your whole life and you sacrifice, it's precious and it's personal to you. It's not your goal. It's mine. And when you don't meet it, it hurts a little bit. And, and so I, I had to work through all of that for the couple of weeks after the race. But then I just realized, I was like, you know, I'm actually grateful for that because the power of that finish is just a reminder of so many of the, of the things that I've overcome in my life. Like I haven't been great. Um, I have a lot of regrets, you know, a lot of pain, but I'm still here and I'm, I'm, I'm still moving forward. To provide a little bit of context for anyone who doesn't exactly know all of the things about Badwater 135, <laughs> it is, quote, the world's toughest foot race, a near mythical status in the world of extreme running. So I just want to make sure that we lay that down real quick. And I also do want to say that when it comes to that 
finish. You're talking about being on your knees a mile from the end, being in such a dark, frustrating place for anyone who may experience negative self-talk or find themselves in a similar position of being in the lowest of lows, maybe not necessarily on the side of a mountain, but you get what I'm saying. What advice do you have to offer them when it comes to channeling that inner resilience? One of the most powerful things that I do in those moments is I ask myself, what story do you want to tell tomorrow? And when you ask yourself that you take full responsibility. You can't blame anyone or anything. I I could have been like, Hey, I've, and I did, I had diarrhea from mile 14, like horrible, I had a horrible time keeping down my fuel. I was cramping. Like I was dizzy. Like I had to push through so much physical discomfort and I could have blamed that. I thought, well, if I didn't have this and if I wasn't vomiting and if I, but no, it's, what story are you going to tell? And are you going to be proud of that story? Is what's going to be the best part? What's the turning point? What's the climax? How is it going to finish? Who's going to listen? And, and I think that we can do that at every point of our life. When we have to make hard decisions, whether it's in your relationships, in your career, your interactions with the world around you, when you are gone at the end of your life, what is going to be the best part of your story? What story do you want to tell? What excites you right now? My kids, I mean, they're at this age. I mean, my kids always excite me, but like both of them are are really starting to be laser focused on their own goals and sport. And I love, I mean, I get so excited. I love being on the sidelines watching them because I still see them as like four and six years old <laughs> and they're not, but they, they keep me motivated and, and moving through not only like my training, but they keep me excited for the future. And my kids, because they've grown up with a mom that's always trained, like they are constantly like, what was your mileage today? How, how did your run go? Where'd you run? How was it? Oh, what race do you have coming up? Like they're so just, they keep me on my toes and they bring so much joy into my life. So I'd say that, um, the other side, I'm excited to finish my book and I'm excited about you know, what that, what hopefully the good that will come from that, you know, the story that I want to share is, is hopefully to encourage people. So those are probably the two biggest things that keep me um, enthusiastic. Um, My running always will. I never grow tired of running and I have a lot of exciting races on the calendar. I'll be hitting up a handful of countries this year. I love to travel and, and see the world. It's been one of the greatest gifts of my career is being able to interact with people all over the world while running up gorgeous peaks. But yeah, those are, those are at the forefront of every day of my life. (laughs) I am also excited for you to finish your book. I cannot, cannot, cannot wait for it. Thank you. All right, Sally, final question. Right now you have an opportunity to offer yourself looking back on the hurdle moment in the 18 months after your mom's passing, taking care of your father, dealing with a lot of tough shit. You have an opportunity to offer that young woman a piece of advice looking back on that hurdle moment. What do you tell her? I tell her you can't see it now, but it's going to be better than you could ever imagine. So grateful for you. I feel like that's like the biggest understatement I have said in the last like five years. I am truly just one of many people that gain so much from keeping up with you or at least attempting to on social media, not IRL. (laughs) 
And uh, I'm so happy that we can make this happen. How do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you as well? Give us the details. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active daily is on Instagram. I do have a couple Facebook pages. Uh, one is a private community. It's a run and strength community. So you can join that. And then I'm yellow runner on there. My website, salamacray.com. And then I have an app, which you can find in, in the link in my bio and on Instagram. Thank you again. I'm so appreciative. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.